Welcome to Series 2 of Leading Between the Lines, a podcast from Alternique Inspired Growth with me, Peter Thorpe, as your host. In the coming months, I'll be talking to the people development heads from some of the world's newest, fastest growing companies and finding out how they go about recruiting, developing and retaining top talent for their business. One thing's for sure, it's very different to even a year ago. A tech company with over 800 employees operating out of London, Boston, Ottawa, Tel Aviv and Zurich. Funding of over $500 million and a company valuation of some $8.56 billion, yes, billion dollars, which has tripled during 2021. So, do you fancy being in charge of all the learning and development? This is Sneak and this is Bridge Palicia, who's got that job. Welcome, Bridge. Thank you, Peter. It's good to be here. Well, those are some huge numbers, aren't they? Yeah. How's all this come about? Well, it's uh, it's definitely been a ride. So, so I've been with the company for about two years, but the company overall is about five years old. And um, from what started in Israel and London, quickly grew into North America um, and Canada, so the US and Canada. Uh, and that was basically our footprint when I joined a couple of years back. But as you mentioned, uh, we've we've grown into a whole bunch of different countries since. Um, I think there are even a couple on the list um, that, that you didn't mention, like Malmo in Sweden, uh, Singapore, uh, Sydney, uh, Denver. And I probably have missed a few myself. But um, the company's really gone from strength to strength because... Uh, we we have a, uh, a product, a set of products which really speak to the market at the moment. Um, cybersecurity has become uh, an increasingly important topic for for companies, and we're combining the expertise in that with uh, developer tooling. So trying to make sure that security is in the hands of developers rather than security teams. So that coming together of those two things has led us. Um, to have quite a lot of success in the market and then f- you know for me personally I mentioned that I've been here for about two years I uh, I come from a kind of a larger company background corporate background um, big public sector companies management consulting uh, my last role was at legal in general as head of learning um, so this was you know a big change but one that I really wanted to take on a completely different set of challenges working with a high growth company yeah, so as it happens, I've worked for Legal in General uh, in the dim and distant past as well, and they are a big corporate with a capital C. So what are the kind of changes that you see with Sneak? Yeah, so um, there's a whole bunch of... They're like chalk and cheese, to be honest with you. Um, and, you know, you don't look at one and say one's better than the other, but I think some of the main things that are really different are um, the tools and tech that we use. So Legal in General would typically have um, kind of like workplace technology, which was more what you'd expect from a company like that. You know, they'd use like Outlook for their emails. They'd use the office suite. And I think it's fair to say a lot of the tools weren't all that sophisticated. They were quite, you know, um, quite what you'd expect. Whereas a company like Sneak, uh, we use Slack to communicate and we use a whole bunch of different, probably slightly more modern tools every day, day in, day out. So that's one of the big differences. I think um, although as the company grows, this becomes 
less and less prominent. The the company certainly when I started was one where pretty much everyone knows everyone. And even now, you feel like you know a significant part of the company, even if you don't know everyone. So there's a slightly more familial feel to it. There's a slightly more warm and friendly culture to it than I think you could expect in any kind of bigger company. Um, and then finally, I think the energy behind it. When you have a company like this, which is fast growing, people are personally invested in it because you know they have equity in the company or they, they've seen it grow from a very kind of small small organization to one that's that's growing and having uh, lots of success in the market that it breeds a different kind of energy um a different kind of collaboration and i think that's something that you know you could really see even from the outside looking in when compared to maybe companies that are a bit longer in the tooth so compared to corporates that have been around for a long long time do you think there's an, an age issue there that in these new startup scale-up businesses the average age seems to be under 35 average age where you're never going to find in your john lewis your legal and general your your waitrose the average age being under 35 do you think that's anything to do with the energy and the, and the, the things that you were just saying that's a good question i think um can't say off the top of my head what our average age is but i think um part of that is lifestyle to be honest with you um when you work in an environment that's growing that quickly, there is no such thing as getting your work done. There's only trying and sometimes failing to get the most important things done. Um, and it requires a lot of flexibility. You know, the sort of thing that I think um, tends to attract people who uh, maybe earlier in their careers looking to accelerate their careers. Um, I think, I wouldn't necessarily call it an issue as such. I think that it's, um, it's a big opportunity for us because you have people who probably aren't quite so set in their ways, um, probably a little bit more fluid, still, still finding their own working styles and the way that they like to uh, collaborate. Um, they're very hungry to learn, which and all of these things tend to lend themselves really well to the idea of a company that's basically reinventing itself every few months. The identity of the company changes so frequently that actually having people who have that hunger for change, have that hunger to learn, have that hunger to do things differently can be a huge plus. And Sneak, of course, uh, created in 2015, well before we were thinking about a pandemic. But the last couple of years, it just seems that the flexible working angle seems to have played right into your hands. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the pandemic has done two things for us. I think from an internal perspective, we were already about 25% full-time remote before the pandemic um, because we we always had that intention of kind of operating out of different countries. The vast majority of our managers manage people that are in different geographies to them. So being able to have, you know, good remote working skills, it was an enabler to us before the pandemic. So making that shift across obviously came with its challenges, but actually we were we were fairly well set up for it from a from a mindset perspective from a tech and kind of enablement perspective so although you know we like everyone had our challenges with it it actually did um it did lend itself to the way that we were working or rather the way that we were working lend itself to the what was forced upon us through the pandemic yeah, so i think the second way that it's had an impact on us is that actually during periods of kind of social civil unrest difficulties on the world stage you tend to you tend to see 
frankly, more hacking attempts, more bad actors, more attempts to kind of undermine security. And that just means that um, the issues that our products speak to have become more important on the exec agenda. So the kinds of customers that we would have or that we would be targeting, um, security has become a more important issue for them. Let's turn to your job then as head of learning and development and, and perhaps a little comparison also between the, the big UK corporate and what you're doing now. And my experience of the big UK corporate and its L&D is that it has a pretty stable program put in place that doesn't tend to move. Um, and none of the employees seem to engage with it that brilliantly. Some, of course, do, but it's there and it seems to tick a box. What during this series of podcasts, and we've done 20 odd with fast growing companies like yours, uh, we're seeing is the learning and development in general for people working for remote companies seems to be a far higher priority than it is for employees in these big, super stable corporates. So somehow you've got to come out with some really good stuff. I don't know how you view that. Yeah, I think um, obviously you're left with a different set of options if you're working in a kind of a remote context from a learning perspective. I think what some of the, I'll call them more established companies, longer standing companies, what some of them, not all of them do is, I think they probably viewed the pandemic as having a transient effect on the way that people work. And maybe they're being optimistic about that. Maybe they're hoping that actually there will be a point in time in the not so distant future when most people will choose to return to work in an office and therefore what what they've been doing for the last year what they may continue to do for the next six months to a year maybe isn't permanent and therefore what they really look to do is put something together that's good enough they'll look to adapt what they had from a face-to-face -face context into something which uh which is good enough for a remote context. I think some of the smaller companies, pacier companies, growing companies, which maybe predict that this will have a more lasting impact, at least on organizations like themselves, would look at that, that challenge differently. And they would say, we're gonna have a lot of people who through this pandemic have chosen maybe to move further away from the big cities, maybe work remotely all the time or most of the time, and actually, we need to make sure that in order to prevent inequality between people who are in an office and not in an office, we have to design everything from a remote perspective first and foremost. You know, years ago, it was all about mobile first. And at the moment, it feels as though everything that we're talking about is remote first. And I do think that that's a point of difference in some companies. So what's your view to remote first? Do you think that all development solutions, some of which would have been brilliant face-to-face, -face, can be equally as well replicated remotely? Or do you see there's a time and a place for both? I think that um, I think there probably is a time and a place for both. I think actually, in most cases, there's a way of doing what you want to do, whether you're doing it face-to-face -face or remotely. I think where people sometimes come unstuck on these things is they start with a bunch of content and then they try to think about, okay, well, this is how we would do this content face-to-face. -face. This is how we might do this content remotely. Or, or worse yet, here is our content face-to-face. -face. 
how do we break this up so that it's more digestible remotely? And I, I, I don't really think that that quite makes sense. I think actually experience is what matters here. And I'm not talking about just does it feel nice to go to a training program? I mean, how, how are you fundamentally changing the perception, the mindset, the behavior of the people that you're trying to influence? I think um, if, you, if you kind of draw parallels to your personal life, I think one of the biggest learning experiences that people tend to have in their personal lives is the death of someone close to them. It can completely transform their outlook on the world. It can turn people who smoke into non-smokers. It can force people who have neglected healthy eating habits to go on a diet and so on. And, you know, that's a real life in-person kind of experience that people have. At the same time, some people watch powerful documentaries or films and choose to change things about their lives and their lifestyle. And actually, what those things have in common is that they, they have a, a deep personal connection to you. They reach you as, a, as an audience, as an end user. Um, and actually, I think it's that impact, the ability to have a profound impact, which really has an impact on whether or not you're going to learn, not whether it's face-to-face -face or remote. Yeah, I, I think that's a really good point. And I completely agree with you. I'm going to ask you in a second how you can have an impact individually on every learner because everyone's going to have a different impact point but just something before we say that just before we came on air to record this I did some um, online learning actually it's from the NHS because I do some volunteering there in a, in a cancer charity and everybody's going back now and you have to do some mandatory training and it's four hours mandatory training online but luckily for me you can go straight to the quiz at the end that you have to get 75 percent or above to pass and I did it in half an hour. And you know what? All I did it for was because I needed to pass the test at the end so I could go back and do what I wanted to do. And it was the most meaningless piece of, well, it wasn't work, of time that I've spent. And it just struck me that I could have been doing that for a living. No impact. So let's come back to your impact. How, how are you going to impact me? How, how's it going to work for me if you're in Ottawa and I'm in London and I really want to progress? Yeah, I think, you know, I think defining what we mean by progressing is probably a good first step, right? So if, if we're talking about you and you want, to, you want to take another step in your career, whether that's like kind of a horizontal lateral move, whether it's a promotion, if there's something that you're aiming at in terms of a role or a job, then really the biggest thing that you can do is have an indirect impact. So focus on managers, try and build manager capability, try to build managers who know how to have development conversations, know how to exchange feedback, know how to have a career conversation, know how to spot talent, understand the importance of not hoarding talent. Uh, people who look for opportunities outside of training courses to develop people, people who promote, um, not just promote with a capital P as in, promote into a new job but promote and highlight and broadcast people's achievements like those are the things that really help elevate people I think you know if you speak to most people who are relatively senior they often have a story about someone who um, at an earlier point in their career kind of took them under their wing and helped them grow help them develop help show them the ropes and I think if you can replicate even some small part of that in every single manager and every every relationship that they have with the direct report you'll have a lot more success in trying to to reach people on an individual level so that's kind of one part of it i'd say is progress um 
I think a big part of what learning and development is doing or should be doing is focusing on people's performance. And I don't mean performance management and annual reviews, etc. I simply mean there's probably a lot of things that you in this hypothetical scenario struggle with that plenty of other people in the company struggle with. And the only way to really have an impact on those people is to speak to them, is to find out what their working days are like, find out what sorts of things they worry about at work, what sorts of things they're having to do often or that they find difficult, and actually try and build, whether it's job aids, whether it's a course, whether it's resources, whatever it is, build stuff around the challenges that you actually face. So the the example that you gave from the NHS is quite an interesting one, actually, because it's a it's probably I haven't seen the module, but it's probably a prime example of just dumping content on someone. Could you hand on heart look at it and say this is answering questions that I had, or it's helping me do the role that I'm doing in this cancer charity more effectively? Have, have I spoken to someone and reported to them these are the top three things that I find difficult about that role, and here are here are the th- very simple practical resources that are going to help me overcome those three things and you know and and you're you know you're shaking your head as i'm saying this right because it's not that's not that doesn't resemble reality it's not what happened you know and i I do think there is a time and a place for e-learning and mandatory learning modules and so on because in some cases it's just the law and you have to be able to do show those things but the example that you gave of your experience of doing it, how you skip forward to the end, you do you do the test, you finish it in, you know, 12% of the time that it that it was designed to take, it's a very familiar one. And it makes you think, well, why don't we just test people from the beginning? If that's the actual requirement, why don't we just put the test at the front of it? And then anything you get wrong that shows you the content for that and it asks you similar questions again to see if you know. Why why does everyone have to sit there for four hours? Or not, as the case may be. What have you put together for your managers then? Because 800 employees and growing at a rate of knots, you must have, I don't know, between one and 200 managers at the moment anyway, spread all around the globe. And the philosophy you describe, I think is excellent, but the implementation and design of it must be horrifically difficult. So it is really difficult, right? Um, we had a program designed that we were due to start running the week before our offices shut down because of the pandemic. So I'd been with the company for about two or three months at this point and had um, spent those two or three months predominantly designing this programme. And I was going to do it in London, take it to Tel Aviv and go to Boston because those were the three areas that we really had a presence at that point in time. We had folks in Canada as well, but they could very easily travel to Boston. Um, And when the pandemic struck, we were suddenly faced with actually, how are we going to do this and that familiar trap that i described of hey like we have this content how do we take it and turn it into something which is palatable virtually was something that i think we came close to doing but but in the end we didn't Uh, what we did instead was design a program which was primarily about on the job experience so we do things like provide people with a set of resources around giving feedback like we'd give them a model and some example conversation, example dialogue. We'd give them tips or a checklist. And then we'd set them a mission. A mission is what we called it, but it's basically a challenge. And we'd say to them, go and exchange feedback with at least three members of your team this week. 
mix it up between kind of positive and constructive feedback. Ask for feedback first. Uh, and we replicated this for lots of different missions. So there was one on feedback. We did some around goal setting. We did some around checking in. We did some around coaching. And I wouldn't sit here and say that I think that that program was 100% successful, but I think it taught us something about how, how you can reach people who are full-time remote. So rather than take that content-driven approach, what we wanted to do was say, during a pandemic, no one's seeing each other very much. Things like feedback, things like checking in that we take for granted usually might not be happening quite so much. And managers who maybe weren't that experienced or skilled with them in the first place, maybe even more reluctant to, to have those kinds of conversations. So we took that approach because we wanted to do something which was more conducive to the actual working styles, working patterns that people were experiencing during the pandemic. How do you measure the success of projects like that? It's incredibly difficult. Um, you know, the truth is you can't actually measure learning. Learning is not something that you can measure. You can just measure things like test results or um, satisfaction. Or, you know, if you're fairly advanced, you might find ways of measuring behavior change as well. And in certain teams, you may be able to actually measure performance. So, you know, for example, a sales team might perform better. Um, but actually trying to measure the success of that, I think the most the most thoughtful way of doing it is um, to try and get data points from various different people. So the kind of 360 method. And it's not something that we were able to actually deploy when we ran this program, which is a real shame. But taking, if you're working on someone if your audience is managers, you have an entire, uh, you have the ability to take kind of a 360 view of that because that person will have a manager. That person will have peers, some of whom will probably be managers. Maybe some of them won't be, but they'll have direct reports as well. So their sphere of influence is quite significant. And doing the befores and afters to try and understand if it's had any material impact on people is, is really helpful. Um, I think when you're dealing with pretty pretty green managers, people who haven't managed before, while that's still useful, a lot of it just tends to come down to confidence. So do people understand their role and do they feel relatively confident with it? And that's usually something they can self-report. But with all of these things, you have to be really clear at the beginning about what it is you're actually trying to change. For me, I was I was keen to make sure that confidence was high that people understood like that things had been myth busted to some extent uh, and that people walked away from it feeling more equipped as managers but i'd be the first one to say that they're not particularly sophisticated metrics okay um now you're a you're a, you're a technology company what is the gender balance looking like in your company so it's um it's a simple question but probably doesn't have the simplest answer which is that uh, we have, when we benchmark ourselves to other comparable companies, I think we're probably performing better from a diversity standpoint than most. That being said, that is not a particularly high bar to meet. So if you were to take a look at, um, for example, our engineering talent or our like R&D talent, our tech talent, it's we're still talking about a massive kind of imbalance in gender. So, you know, we make, we set ourselves targets. We set ourselves ambitions to try to 
to try to meet in order to actually have a material change on the number of female or non-binary engineers that we have, for example, versus male. Um, and you know, some of that is addressed, or we try to address it through organic hiring. But actually, there's a bunch of stuff that we try to do on top of that to try and actually have a, a kind of top of funnel impact on on our um, on our workforce. So to give you an example, we run a um, uh, an internship program. We call it a community outreach program, and it is uh, aimed at people from. Um, I suppose, non-traditional backgrounds for the kinds of roles that we have, maybe people who are from a minority ethnic background, people who um, are female or non-binary. And those are, those are the folks who we predominantly recruit through this. And uh, many of them go on to take on permanent roles with us and, and they can take on an internship in most parts of the business. So actually, it's not just the tech talent. It could be in the, the people team, which I'm in. It could be in sales. It could be in... Um, finance it could be in a, in a whole bunch of different teams um, but what it does is it rather than trying to attract the scarce talent which already exists it's one of the ways in which we're trying to grow diverse talent within the organization and actually you know we are expanding upon that as well so whilst we'll still continue to run that program um, a, a colleague of mine Kayla Di Pietro has recently been hired um, in the diversity, equity, and inclusion space. And she is focusing on um, things like university partnerships. So how are we finding diverse talent at the kind of school leaver level? How can we bring people like that in to fill in roles where we can look at ourselves and look at the market and we know that there's, a, there's an issue and a challenge around you know, true representation? It's all well and good setting yourself targets, but actually it can be really difficult when you're competing for scarce talent. So we take that challenge on to try and find ways of diversifying at the earliest possible stage of people's careers. In the UK, um, as you'll be aware, for years there's been this philosophy of big consultancy companies, the KPMGs, etc., trawling around the universities, trying to, to buy people in straight out of university and companies going around schools um a la your engineering example and politically that's been thrown at us in the uk with very little result i'm just wondering if a company like yours with more remote roles it's a different type of working it's a different age bracket do you see yourself as perhaps having a better shot at those age groups and those types of people i think so i think i think we we, we may be able to partly because um to some extent we're able to we're able to be more representative of the talent that we're looking for as well. Like, I mean, you called attention to age there. You know, I don't think we have a completely male workforce. You know, we do have um, a degree, a good degree of diversity in the company. So we're actually able to um, attract people to the company because sometimes they see people that are like them here. And, you know, I, I was never kind of approached at university by one of the big four or anything. So I can't say if that was the case for them, but, I'd like to think that still works in our favor to some extent. Uh, and, and it's actually, it's very authentic. Like we, we don't have conversations about who looks best at a careers fair or something like that. It's just naturally we do have those kinds of people. I think, I, I think one of the other things that works for us really well, um, not just at an early careers level or from a diversity recruitment point of view, but actually just across the board is 
whenever we hire someone, they meet quite a few people at the company. And that tends to be something that seals the deal for us because we have, you know, a quite distinct culture. The kinds of people that you interact with at the company, um, they tend to be obviously very willing to give you their time and obviously very willing to help and so on. So it tends to work well for us that people who potentially come to work at Sneak have that opportunity to meet lots of people because it's just a selling point for us. Um, I think, yeah, there are some other small factors that come into play with it as well. I think, you know, we're in major cities. So, and those cities are places where people tend to gravitate for employment once they finish university. So that's really helpful. Um, we, you know, you mentioned age as well, which I think does come into it to some extent. I think over time, you know, uh, work the average age of our workforce would increase no matter what anyway, because people get older. But we do still have people who, um, for whom this is, you know, they're maybe their second job. We have a lot of people for whom maybe this is their second or third job. So, yeah, I think we're able to be more representative of the talent we're looking for. So in the last part of this episode, um, I'd like to turn towards you, Bridge, uh, on, on a bit of a more personal basis. Tell us a bit about your background, where, where you've been, even pre-work, where you grew up, what happened to you? How did you end up on the career path that, that you ended up on? Well, yeah, I am. Um, so I grew up in um, a suburb of London called Bexley, specifically a little a town called Welling within the borough of Bexley. Um, so I had one sister, both parents in the house. Um, and by all accounts, I had a pretty normal childhood, actually. Uh, I went to a grammar school because that was a part of the UK that still has grammar schools and uh, was not very academic, hated school, which was a weird choice for someone who ends up working in kind of company education. Um, and I th- I, to be honest, with you, I don't think I hated school. I think I just hated the academia part of it. I actually quite enjoyed school. I enjoy the social experience of it. Um, but um, when I graduated from from high school from grammar school I uh I didn't really know what I wanted to do I was going to go study drama at university um which my folks kind of talked me out of because they were probably concerned they'd be supporting me for the rest of their lives um and I I went to university I dropped out after a couple of weeks took a year out went back uh finished my degree I did business in the end um and I got a job, I got a job working in the public sector. Okay. I, um, I was only there for a few months before my dad passed away, which was, you know, a big shock to the family kind of unit, the family system. Um, but it really, you know, I mentioned earlier in, in this episode as well, that I'd, that an example, I think of a major learning event is when someone passes away that's close to you. And I think that's the sort of effect it had on me. It made me much more focused. It made me much more driven. Uh, and it was at that point that I started to take my career much more seriously. So I um, I ended up a couple of years after that moving to a management consultancy, uh, which was uh, an incredible experience because I got to work in different countries. I got to work in lots of different companies. Um, I got to be surrounded by people who are, you know, to this day, some of the smartest people I've ever worked with. Um, and it set me up really well to go and, have a kind of a different career in in industry which is what i've done since with legal in general and and sneak um family wise i am 
you know, just blessed in that area, got very, very, very close relationship with my family um, and, and our dog. I, I could talk about our dog for a really long time, but I'm not sure your listeners will be too well, thrilled. Do you by know, that. I think they'd probably love to know a bit about your dogs. Go for it. So, so obviously none of your um, listeners are going to be able to see this, but just behind me is a, a really um, interesting picture of me and my um, a pet dog um, would be almost, I think it's fair to say, be very difficult to describe this picture. But she's a, she's a year old. She's a Maltese. Her name's Millie. Um, she's very, very small for her age and breed. Um, but she's absolutely enamoured with me and I with her. So we're best friends. There's been a 20% increase in pets during uh, lockdown. A lot of them now, sadly, needing to find new homes. But in general terms, pets and dogs in particular, as therapy dogs and people close to our heart, they they really do do something, don't they? We, we've got a dog as well. Um, and anyone who knows who's got one, then they almost become more important than yourself. Absolutely. Totally changes your life. There's another kind of learning experience for you. It completely changes your life. Um, and I've read that actually about um, the, the increase in, in kind of pet ownership and subsequently the number of animals that have ended up in, in kind of shelters, rescues, etc. Um, actually, to the point now where healthy dogs are being put down, which is a real shame. Um, and me and my other half, we were considering uh, getting a dog of our own because Millie lives with uh, my family so I don't get to see her all the time um, and we are absolutely resolute that if we do get one it will be from a rescue or a shelter or someone who needs a, a dog that needs to be rehomed in some way. So what are your values then you're starting to just get into them a little bit there talking about your dad and your family and, and the dog but what do you really stand for as a human being? It's a deep question um, I think um I think being kind and being generous are two things that I really care about. These are sort of aspects that I think I try to aspire towards because when I see them in other people, I really respect it. Um, you know, I'm looking at the moment towards doing some more volunteer work, for example, because I think that that's um, a generous way to use your time. It's a kind way to use your time. And I think those things are really important. Um, I think that I I think I probably value to some extent um, humor in all in all forms. I think I'm one of these people who at work probably pushes the boundary of what's slightly acceptable just um, both kind of professionally and in terms of humor I'm just someone who I, I like to enjoy the people I work with, uh, the people I live with, the people I engage with day to day. So I think, again, when I can see someone who doesn't take themselves too seriously, it's something that I appreciate. Those would probably be the big things for me. I could go on about this, actually. There's probably lots of little other aspects of people's personalities that either I'd like to see in myself or see more of in myself or things that I try to embody. But those would be the big things for me. Go on then, give us a couple of those little ones. We won't go on for hours, but it's just really interesting. Yeah, no, I think um, I think you know, keeping your word, being reliable, is another one for me. 
you know, life is such that when something changes, sometimes you can't follow up, follow through on the things that you said you were going to do. But I think it's incredibly important to explain that, to be honest and upfront about that. Um, and I always try to be reliable with people. Um, if I say I'm going to do something, I'll almost always do it. And this is a very good reason why I can't. Um, I think being authentic is really, really important. Um, there was... Uh, just in my personal life, there's someone who me and my partner met and both didn't get a great feeling about this person. And afterwards, she was trying to figure out why that was the case. And I said, I think I know why that's the case. And it's because this person hasn't really let you see what they're like. This person has, you know, portrayed a version of themselves, which actually wasn't offensive, wasn't not likable, was in no way unpleasant. But you walk away from that exchange feeling like you don't really know that person, that there's something beneath that that you haven't seen. So I think trying to be as like authentic, which for me is just being consistent with people, is is really important. So I, I like to think there's not a massive difference between me at work, like bridge at work, bridge with his family, bridge with his friends, bridge by himself. I like to think that there's always some differences, but that maybe they're not too too stark. Last question, uh, and that is, where do you see you going throughout the rest of your life? And I don't mean you'll leave this company next year or then the year after. Not that much, much wider, following along what you've just been talking about. Now, how would you like to be considered in 20 years' time when you, you can look in the mirror and look at yourself? So I, I, I kind of believe that it doesn't really matter that much what you do job-wise. Like, I, I, I quite like what I do, but... I I think it's much more important. I think your experience of work depends much more on who you work with than what you do. So I think at some point in the future, whether it's in learning, whether it's in something completely different, I'd want to be able to say that I, I had an impact on a few people's lives. There doesn't have to be a lot of people, but if they're part of a team that I ran or if they manage me or none of that stuff altogether, but just had an impact on them in some way, those would be things that I'd be really proud of more so than did I deliver a program here or there. Those are things I'd be much less, um, much less excited or nostalgic about. Um, I think I'd like to say that I probably tried something else career wise. So I had a fairly varied route in before I got into learning I did like project management program management comms change management I had roles in different kind of sectors and stuff but I think um maybe breaking out of kind of HR change IT kind of spaces and doing something different might be something that I'd, I'd be interested in um and outside of that I mean 20 years from now it'd be nice to be retired frankly you're not old enough, are you? Uh, well, ask me in 20 years. So, <laughs> Go on then, one last line. How yeah. do you want to be remembered? The man who... Man who... Man who... Um, that's the most difficult question you've asked yet. That's a really hard one. Man who said what you thought and left. Oh, what a wonderful line. What a wonderful line. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is Bridge Pelicia from Sneak, one truly authentic man. Bridge, thank you so much for your time. It's been a real joy. Oh, thank you, Peter. Appreciate it. 
If you've enjoyed today's episode and are interested in seeing and listening to more of our content, please do follow us on our LinkedIn profile, where you'll find more industry-related material and articles. We'll be back in a few weeks with another episode, and we look forward to you joining us then.